This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 85 is Jungian analyst and author Beverly Zabriskie in New York City. She began her career as a journalist for Gannett Newspaper and was at Time Magazine for seven years as their theater reporter. She then went on to earn a master's degree from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work and began training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, later receiving her diploma in analytical psychology from the Jung Institute of New York. She is a founding faculty member and former president of the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association, past president of the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis, and past vice president of the Philemon Foundation, publishers of the Red Book and the Black Books of C.G. Jung. In 2002, she was named Psychoanalytic Educator of the Year for the International Federation of Psychoanalytic Education. Her 2007 Fay Lectures at Texas A&M University, part of the annual Fay Lecture Series in Analytical Psychology, was titled Transformation Through Emotion, From Myth to Neuroscience. Currently, she serves on the Executive Committee of the Helix Center for Interdisciplinary Investigation at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute and sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Analytical Psychology and the San Francisco Jung Journal. Her roundtable discussions on synchronicity at the Helix Center with Harold Atmanspacher, Joseph Cambray, Edgar Kuhiri, and Farzad Mahutian are available on YouTube and her 2010 interview with Leonard Nimoy about Jung's Red Book is available on Vimeo. She is the organizer of Sonu Shamdasani's upcoming Black Books webinar on Jung's Book of the Dead, being presented by the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association on June 6th, and her upcoming talk for the Perry Center online event What is Consciousness will take place on Sunday, June 20th. Mrs. Zabriskie is a very prolific author having published many journal articles and book chapters, including The Spectrums of Emotion in Research in Analytical Psychology, Time and Tao in Synchronicity in the Pauli-Jung Conjecture, and Jung and Pauli, A Meeting of Rare Minds, the preface to Adam and Archetype, the Pauli-Jung Letters, which is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Monday, April 19th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Thank you so much for joining us today, Beverly. Thank you, Laura. I'm delighted to be here. I heard you say something to Leonard Nimoy in a talk that you two did at the Hammer Museum at UCLA back in 2010, You said that you two were forbidden to speak beforehand in order to create tension, and you called it a tantric moment. Yes, exactly. And I love that because what I have done with this podcast since the beginning is I talk too much to my guest beforehand, and you and I chatted a little bit, and I was trying to stop it. Um, And another thing I heard you say In your talk at the Library of Congress, uh, right after the release of the Red Book, I heard you say that as a Jungian analyst, you like the backstories and the hidden stories. So maybe you could briefly tell us 
about the Red Book dialogues with Leonard Nimoy? Um, well, I can just say that we opened the Red Book. Uh, it was first launched at the Rubin Museum in New York. And so many authors, celebrities, actors wanted to take part that when Leonard Nimoy heard about it and wanted to present there, we, we couldn't take him there. Oh, okay. And the same happened with the artist Bill Viola. So instead, the Hammer invited them. And so I had two tantric <laughs> experiences with these two very different men. Mm-hmm. Uh, Viola does a great deal of work on the passions in his video art. And Nimoy, because Mr. Spock was supposed to not have had emotion, really wanted to talk to me about emotion. And in the audience, his wife said he was very, she was very glad that he was getting into that subject, having played this emotionless person for years. As a result of that talk, I'm still followed by Trekkies. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So in the intro, I mentioned this upcoming Black Books webinar with Professor Sonusham Dasani on Jung's Book of the Dead. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you're probably familiar with the Red Book, which is that immense volume of Jung's active imaginations, fantasies, visions, and dialogues with inner figures. And that was very much a put-together volume. The Black Books are his private journals that they're slender black books that he kept by his bedside. And he wrote down his first thoughts in the morning, his dreams, and his reflections. And not only did he talk to his inner figures, he had them talk to each other. So that the different aspects of his psyche could start to get related to other aspects, which is a key um value in Jungian analysis and Jungian psychology, which is all about integration of what's dissociated. So he continued these these dialogues and came to his definition of the psyche as being a multiplicity within a unity. And it began from these slim volumes that he kept from the time he was 13 on. And seven of them are published in this set put out by the Philemon Foundation. And they're much more accessible than the Red Book because he's musing and learning as he's going. And it's like an invitation into his space, his psychic space. But he was, I think, 38 at the time and starting to turn away from his role as the... uh the apostle, so to speak, of psychoanalysis and going more into his own inner world. He shortly began to study alchemy as a proto-psychology and proto-chemistry and even proto-physics. So it's a huge turning point where he began to think of the second half of life as the era where you prepare to die and for the sake of a good death. So there's many thoughts in in the Black Books and engagements with different ideas of death, and that's what Sona will address. And that is in a webinar. It's on June 6th, 
and I will provide a link to register in the show notes. And it is very affordable. I think that he'll speak for an hour and a half and maybe followed by questions. He'll speak for about an hour and then there'll be discussion with him from some members who were on the film on board like I was, and then a question and answer from the audience. Great. And that's at 2.30 on that Saturday afternoon, no, Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And then you will be giving a talk for the Perry Center, their online event. It's titled, What is Consciousness? And that will take place, your talk is on Sunday, June 20th, but the entire event uh, is eight Saturdays and Sundays. And what will you be speaking about at that? Well, I'm I'm just now putting together a title. I think it will be, um, I'm not sure what it will be, okay. but I know that it will be emotion, synchronicity, and surprise will be the topics. Because you may or may not know this, but there's, most people agree on either six or eight basic survival emotions. And surprise is on those lists, along with anger, fear, disgust, um, sorrow, joy, and surprise. So in other words, the capacity for surprise is a physiological survival emotion that functions in the instinctive realm. And in terms of psychology, especially Jungian psychology, the whole entry of, let's say, an archetypal image or narrative in one's own material usually is greeted by surprise. And there's some of us who believe that in any analytic session, Mm -hmm. there is the entry of a kind of analogy in terms of how one views one's own experience in the light of the history of the human species that's essential and is accompanied by this experience of surprise. And Jung thinks about it as the entry of an archetypal motif. Now, I heard you, and we're going to get to this, um, when you were discussing the topic of synchronicity at the Helix Center, you brought in the element of surprise. That there's the factor of time, yes, but there's also this element of surprise. Well, it's a very key issue, and it's very connected to synchronicity, because surprise means there's something emergent Mm. hovering around. And um, so the capacity for surprise means there's also an openness to take in some new information. And that's in contrast to something Jung said in the vision seminars, that Security is a blasphemy against the self because it means that we're seeking a kind of security that we can stay feeling safe and complacent within. And so to let in something that's surprising is the beginning of a new process. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm going to look for that. It's in the vision seminars. So let's start with the book that we're here to talk about today. It is titled Adam, A-T-O-M, and Archetype, The Pauli Jung Letters. It was 
edited by C.A. Meyer, who was a psychiatrist and a Jungian analyst. He was very close to Jung. He was the co-founder and the first president of the Jung Institute in Zurich. And the book contains the correspondence between Jung and Wolfgang Pauli, and it outlines how they were working out this theory of synchronicity. So I'd like to ask you, firstly, how did you become involved with this book? I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> okay. um, I, I was asked to review an article, or several articles, by scholars. And because I had been studying alchemy, I... I not studying alchemy, I'd been studying Jung's interpretation of alchemy, mm -hmm. I was drawn to see where science had gone with some of the same basic principles as in alchemy. But my own last experience with science was dissecting the frog in college. Yeah. And I'd never taken physics courses, so I took two years to read and read and read and try to put together what Pauli was saying with what Jung was saying. And then I had a couple of physicists vet it, and I wrote it as a journal article. And then Princeton wanted to put out a book of the correspondence and asked me to do the preface mm. based on the journal article. Well, it's wonderful. I think it's 24 pages long, and it is, uh, is fascinating. But I would just like to back up first for the listeners who are not familiar with Pauli. We are talking about the physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And would you tell us briefly who he was and how he knew Jung? Well, he was um, considered the most brilliant physicist of his generation. Mm -hmm. And he eventually got a, a Nobel Prize for physics. But he was also thought to be irascible, and he was called the scourge of physics and the conscience of physics. And when he was 18 years old, he went to a lecture of Einstein's and stood up and criticized one of the theories. And Einstein said he'd never met someone so brilliant as this 18-year-old. But it was the Pauli effect was thought to be that any time he walked into a laboratory, all the glass vessels broke as if his his irascibility affected the material around him. So he had a real mind-matter effect. That's interesting you mentioned that. I've heard of that happening before. It is outlined by Lynn Buchanan in his book, The Seventh Sense. Did he ever mention that? Did he ever talk about that? Well, he certainly uh, cooperated with the fantasy or the reality of the Pauli mm -hmm. effect. And then when he came to the United States uh, during World War II, he was at the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies, and he wanted to be part of the Oppenheimer Project, the atomic project mm -hmm. at Los Alamos, yes. and they wouldn't let him go because they thought his emotional presence would be too dangerous if he started breaking vessels without even opening his mouth. Is that right? So he never got to go there. Yes. I, thought, I thought he was the conscientious objector. Was that not him, that he did not want to be involved in the uh, creation of the atomic bomb? I don't remember that exactly. That was certainly Einstein, yeah. 
but I'd, I'd have to go back and really review that. But in any case, what's so touching about this correspondence is that he he went because of life problems to see Jung, and Jung said to him, and this was, I think, Pally was 30 years old, and Jung must have been 55 at that point. He said, no, you don't want to work with me. I'm going to send you to a, this young woman who's a new analyst because she will not influence how you view your material, and I will have too strong an effect mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. So he sent him to see a woman named Rosenberg, but then later on, Polly reapproached him, and they didn't. He didn't analyze Polly, but they worked on this theory together of this mind-matter connection that came to be called synchronicity. And the touching thing is how much care Jung takes in writing to this man. Their deep respect and affection for each other comes yeah. through the book, and you can take almost any letter and learn so much from it. So together, they developed this idea that causation is not the only principle in matter, but that um, there's also a whole method of, let's say, correlation would be one way to think about it, where things are linked, not because they are cause and effect, but because they can be granted a meaning that has some similarity with what has happened when there is a a meeting of something external and internal in a person's mind or psyche. And unfortunately, the term synchronicity gets thrown around quite a bit. As you may know, Sting wrote, had a whole album called Synchronicity. And it's a very popular theme in rock and roll. And, um, but Jung meant it that something would happen that had a synchronous quality in space and time between some inner experience and an outer one, that there was some kind of connectedness. Mm-hmm. And that's synchronous. But something is not a synchronicity until the person who is seeing that convergence grants it meaning. So until meaning is granted to it, where someone or all those who experience it find a way to make meaning and be imprinted by the experience, it's a synchronous event, not a synchronicity. Mm. So what's so important there is that it was Jung's attempt to cut across magical thinking like anything that happened was an intervention of the gods, if right. it had a strange, eerie sense of coincidence to it or impact. But it's funny that it, 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 it has almost been taken over as if it's another experience of magical thinking. Yes, and this element of there being the, a connection between a mental state and a physical state is so important to exploring this further. And it's something that I think gets left behind. And the general use of the term synchronicity is when two things are connected, and somebody attributes meaning, but they're not necessarily 
a mental state and a physical state. They're two physical states. So what would you call that? Well, you have to look at it from Jung's emphasis on the psyche is an active agent in life. And that it's the psyche, especially once a person learns how to have self-esteem and how to value themselves, then can grant meaning to any kind of convergence Mm. or connectedness. It could be, for instance, a synchronicity could be a psychic dream with an image in it that may describe what later turns out to be the way a person dies. I've had that experience with several patients, and I wrote about it in a volume called About a Body. It can be several people in a room having a same image that comes up spontaneously. One summer, Esther Harding, who was a very distinguished Jungian analyst, had nine of her patients, analyzans, for a month at Bailey Island in Maine. Mm-hmm. And at the end, she asked their permission to give a presentation that they had each had dreams of turtles. So it could be an image that comes up among many different people at the same time, as well as an individual experience. But for those nine people, until they made meaning of it, it was not yet a synchronistic event. Mm -hmm. And I've had that with patients. I, I, I had one instance where a patient is coming down the hall toward my door, and I open the door and I have an image of a lobster. And then we sat down, and later on, she said, you know, I was on Canal Street in New York, and a lobster came between me and the other car. So how do you explain that, that we both had that image of a monster come up as soon as I entered her psychological field? Because that's what an analyst does. You go into the patient's field. So then we each would have to make meaning of that for ourselves before it was a synchronistic event. And so let's use that as an example. What did you do with that? Because a lot of the times when I talk to people about the synchronicities they experience, they tell me about the synchronicity, but nothing after, nothing, what did you do with that image? Or what? how did you move that forward? Well, I'll talk about that more outside of a clinical situation. Okay. Um, let's say I, I had a dream of a snake, and we now know through this incredible work that's going on in neuroscience that we have many, many layers of consciousness in us, going back to sponges and going through lizards and reptiles yeah. and animals and that's that's all parts of us and our being and our consciousness so i would in that instance for instance do um research on snake and i would find out which i did that the snake is the first of creaturehood that has emotion that reptiles are the first beings or species with Mm -hmm. emotion. 
And Jung talks about it, that when a snake appears in the psyche, it's the beginning of a new emotional phase. So I would try to dig down into myself and see what is the newest emotional experience I am having. And I would try to ground that as sort of the movement of a kind of psychic but also physical energy in me and then give it recognition, give it value, and allow myself to let the emotion tell me what is trying to emerge. You would look at a synchronicity analytically as you would look at a dream? Yes, insofar as dreams are the emergent part of our psyches. Mm -hmm. And you would look at the elements involved in the synchronicity, you would look at them symbolically, you would look for associations and amplifications? Yes, and Jung talks about bringing in associations and amplifications as opening the field to synchronicities because they give you a way to view your own material from outside yourself with the amplifications and associations. Mm -hmm. So I want to back up a little bit and talk about how Jung's concept of synchronicity was developed, how he developed it. And you had mentioned Albert Einstein, and I heard you say that Jung's three greatest influences were William James, the psychologist William James, uh, Sigmund Freud, and Albert Einstein. And Jung and Einstein were both teaching at the Eteha in Zurich at the same time. And they had interaction. And you can find that in the letters. But would you say that was the beginning of Jung working on this? Well, if you read the Jung-Freud letters, you see the degree to which his talks with Albert Einstein were actually key in his separation from Freud. And he talks about this young scientist coming for dinner with him and Bloiler, who invented the idea of schizophrenia, and how his, his talking about light in mathematics made Jung feel so small, but that it was Einstein that started him on studying science. And realizing that there were these realms of mathematics and science that were different, were analogies for forms of psychic energy. And that's when he began to say psychic energy was not just sexual. So there was a tremendously strong pivot right there with Einstein and Jung. And then he says many years later, he engaged in conversations about quantum physics with Pauli. Mm -hmm. So there's that, that kind of link between those two physicists of those generations. And, I mean, another, another piece I think that I, I do want to put in is that synchronicity always comes with a surprise. It's yeah. something you would have imagined ahead of time. So if you wake up in the morning and you think of someone you didn't talk to for 30 years and they call you that day, for instance, that would be a kind of typical sense. Of course, you often think about someone you knew 30 years ago, nobody calls you, so it's right. not that it's predetermined. 
but unless there's an element of surprise, nothing new is entering in. So when you take the surprise seriously, then you, you sort of lend yourself to it. And Jung and Pauli had to work out together what, how this happened and how they were connected. And it was through meaning. It was meaningful connection. That's always the key word. If it doesn't have meaning, it stays a coincidence. Would you give us an example of um, something that is meaningful versus something that is not meaningful? Well, remember, because Jung is talking from the point of view of the psyche, it's only the psyche that can make meaning for the person. So it so depends on the receptivity to be able to sort of be humble enough to take an experience in and spend time with it and let it talk to you until what its imprint on you is meant to be. And usually that comes along with an emotional experience. And now, as we know from neuroscience, emotions research, where Jung is now cited often, mm-hmm. that it's emotion that's the basis for cognition, that unless there's an emotion, the thought doesn't rise up to consciousness. Mm-hmm. So this is about an emerging consciousness-making project. So you've mentioned the neuroscience work a few times now. Is this new research that you're referring to? Would you tell us a little bit about it? Well, there was no real emotions research until the 1990s because Mm -hmm. it was thought that emotion was an inferior subject for research. And since the 1990s, there's been an explosion And so these researchers tend to go back and either knowing they're quoting Jung or not knowing Jung and that they have the same thoughts. There's a great deal of convergence now in neuroscience. And also the whole concept of synchronicity is now appearing everywhere Mm -hmm. in all the disciplines. So for instance, the, the, roundtable on synchronicity we did at Helix has had something like 64,000 hits. I don't know if that's a lot, but it is for synchronicity. But half of them have been in the last six months. Mm -hmm. So that concept and the effect of the psyche in all forms of culture and nature, because it's coming to the fore, Jung's idea that the psyche is an emotionally regulating process is now often cited. So if the psyche regulates our emotions and it allows surprise to come up without experiencing it as a narcissistic injury because you didn't think of it in your waking life and there's the receptivity, then that makes the, the space to have thoughts and reflections in response to it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's hard to really grasp what Jung means by the primacy of the psyche as sort of a meaning-making apparatus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So another thing I don't want to gloss over is 
what Wolfgang Pauli was working on and what Jung was working on were very similar. So Jung's analytical psychology and Pauli's quantum mechanics had similarities. Well, one, first I'll um, just mention one thing and, and then I'll, I'll go to that. There's a difference between a synchronistic event or synchro- what we call synchronicity and a mantic event. Mantic event is when you sit down with an I Ching and you invoke with a question mm-hmm. or a meditation an answer. That's mantic. Synchronicity, a synchronicity, potential synchronicity comes as a surprise. We don't evoke it. It happens to us. So that's one very important distinction. So Pauli would wake up in the morning and he would throw the I Ching because he was involved in Eastern thought. I wrote one piece called Pauli and the Chinese Woman that's about how uh, the appearance of a Chinese woman in his dreams affected his theory even. Um, So he was looking at it from the Eastern point of view, and as you know, Jung was very involved from the time of the secret of the golden flower with Chinese alchemy. So they met there. And then um, the willingness to engage with something outside of his profound knowledge was very close to Jung's idea of, of receptivity to what was just coming up. So Pauli wanted to address this from the physics side and Jung from the psychic energy aspect of it. And I just lost a thought, but I, I think it'll, it'll come back. So... Um, oh yes, here's what it is. They both had an obsession with the number four mm-hmm. and Pauli's work added the whole idea of the fourth dimension in terms of space, time, uh, horizontal, vertical by analyzing the spin in a neutron. So the fourth was very important in his research, and Jung talked about the four as being very important as a number of a certain kind of psychological development phase that one could realize, if only for a time before a new phase had to begin. So they both were very involved in this whole idea of the quaternio as an image of completeness and adding in a very active component. And Jung talked about how the four would become the new one because you would end a phase of development and that fourth stage would become the first stage of the next stage of development. So the emphasis on process was very common between the two of them. Mm Jung calls the psyche a process. Yes, and and Jung understood the unconscious as a process. So what does that mean, really? It means you you keep going, that Mm -hmm. as soon as you realize that something is missing in you, Mm -hmm. and you start to search for what, what that is and what would give more sense of a meaning in life, you're already in connection with what Jung called the self because he says the self is a process. Mm-hmm. 
So it's the ability to think of oneself as always in process, which means receiving, including, integrating as much as one can, rather than trying to find a defensive position to protect one's ego. What would you say to someone who feels stuck and nothing's happening and they're just kind of in a slump and they're not engaged with the process? Well, if you think of how a dream, once we remember a dream, it's like a piece of the unconscious has already crossed into the threshold of consciousness. So there's that liminal time and space when one is just waking up or one is falling asleep. So if someone doesn't dream and they feel stuck, I ask them to just stay in bed for 10 more minutes and have a beautiful journal by their bedside and just write down their very, very first thoughts in the morning and try to focus on those before listening to the news or taking care of the children. And and that already puts you in a liminal space. You're beginning to pick up what you're dreaming because you're, you're letting yourself stay on the threshold. And in Jungian theory, the complex is the architect of the dream. A, a dream tells you that there is an active complex that you're not aware of that's interpreting your experience of life. And emotion is at the core of that. And emotion is at the core of an image, also an archetypal image. So that's where the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious meet. It's, it's the core of Jung's theory. It's interesting, speaking to all these analysts uh, in doing this podcast, no two are alike, and everyone has their their perception of it and explains it in their way. And it's been very interesting um, to, to notice over these years. I think that with synchronicity, one of the questions that's most fascinating is how is the human mind able to penetrate the material world? Well, you know, the material world began from one tiny little explosion. It all goes back to one source, and that's what Aristotle called the arche, the one source, the one beginning. And that's the word that then Jung applied to the archetype as emerging from the most, most common inherited ground of our being. And in in that one source, which determined the natural laws of the universe, time and space are not there. They, they come along later. Time is not one of the natural laws of the universe. So time is how human beings measure change. So then from that one energy expulsion, then happened something called frozen accidents where certain random gases came together so early that it's as if they're part of the natural laws of the universe. And it's thought that the human species is a somewhat unfortunate collision of random gases. Uh 
if you talk to a physicist about it. So we are made of the same material as our own galaxy, and physicists and mathematicians talk about the anthropic principle, that it's only because we are part of this galaxy and we are made up of the same component as as stars, we're stardust, that our minds can um, embrace and explore and research and come to some theories about our universe. And if we were in a different galaxy, we wouldn't be able to. And if somebody came here from another galaxy, they wouldn't be able to because they're not made of the same stuff. Mm. And this anthropic principle is a very serious principle among physicists and astrophysicists. So we're, we're part of it. And then it got diverged in sort of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which separated mind from body and soul from body. Yeah. And now there's this attempt to bring it back together in terms of human beings realizing that they are of the same stuff and, but bring a kind of mind energy, mindful energy, psychic energy to bear and can make meaning of it. That psyche and matter are not two things, but two aspects of one thing. And the, the great researcher in this is Harold Ottmansbacher, yes. a Swiss man at the University of Zurich in the ETH, and he talks about dual aspect monism, that we all come from the same one source, and then matter and psyche are just dual aspects of that one source. And Dr. Ottmansbacher is one of the speakers in the roundtables that I mentioned in the intro that you organized and moderated for the Helix Center back in 2014. There are two of them. They were both filmed and are available on YouTube. I will have links in the show notes. And would you tell us a little bit about how you put those individuals together? Because it is fascinating. And I highly recommend everybody who is interested in synchronicity to watch these two videos because they are, they're two Jungian analysts and a rocket scientist at Princeton University, Dr. Ottmansbacher, and then Dr. Chuiri. So would you tell us a little bit about them? Um, there were actually five of us and the fifth one was Mahutian. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, he was He was actually my favorite. I He's incredible. He's incredible. And what he did was he brought in teams of, of observers into scientific laboratories. And as you may know, in quantum physics, they think that the presence of the observer and how the observer measures the, ex- the elements in the experiment actually affects the experiment. So he brought in a term, a team of observers and tracked how their observation of the scientists changed what the scientists expected in the experiments and therefore changed the results of the experiments. Edgar Chueri is a plasma propulsion rocket scientist for Princeton and at NASA. 
And so he develops plasma propulsion systems to send spaceships to Mars and beyond right now. And I met him at a cocktail party. And as soon as I heard he was a physicist, I said, oh, I have a great crush on a physicist. And he said, Wolfgang Pauli, <laughs> I have a crush on him too. So that's how our relationship began. Oh, I love it. And Joe Cambray, of course, I've known as a colleague and Jungian analyst, and I knew Farzad through other other kinds of conferences. I want to mention one other thing that's yes. um, a little off topic, but it isn't sure. really. At um, Ottman Spocker Science of Consciousness conference in June 2019, I heard a woman speak from Boston, and she's an expert in placebo medicine. And I was so fascinated by her, I had her come to a recent roundtable at Helix on placebo, nocebo, what has a positive effect because of a belief system and what has a negative effect, like thinking you're being cursed. It turns out that there is in, in our brains a receptivity to activate a placebo system within our bodies. So a placebo can have an actual physical effect. Mm -hmm. It's not a fake. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the great examples in up-to-date modern science of the whole idea of synchronicity that something comes in and there's no absolute causal effect, mm -hmm. but there is an effect in terms of the receptivity yes. that it activates in the body that has a healing quality. So I urge you to watch that placebo roundtable as well. Ah, so that is available on their YouTube channel? Yes. yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay, I will definitely get a link to that in the show notes and have a look at it myself. So as we wrap up today, Beverly, I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about the experience of synchronicity and paying attention to the images that come up, the emotions that are around it. Yes. And um, one way to think about this is to imagine oneself as trying to exist in a kind of threshold state where one is paying attention to what arises from within, whether it's dreams or fantasies or affect or emotion, and give it a little space to speak to one and to let some element of discomfort or unease, even shame about what one has dreamt to come in engage it, and work to bring those different parts of oneself together. I always say if someone comes in and says, what dream should I tell? I always ask them to tell me the one where there's the most emotion and the most discomfort that they would most like to suppress. So one can get all the different parts of oneself sort of in relation to our waking selves and therefore have the sense that one can continue to grow. So synchronicity, carrying that element of surprise and entry 
it's just a lovely occasion. It's sort of an invitation to continue. And also from a Jungian view, a symptom is an occasion to uh, move forward. The symptom is trying to push us to pay attention to something in ourselves so we can continue. So that's what comes up from the unconscious, a kind of push into the future, often using images of the past as well as emotions of the present. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate the invitation and the time. Please visit the website, speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Princeton University Press, the Helix Center, and to Margaret Clank, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.